Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Cedric. I want to thank you for being here. Um, I'm the founder of Cedric Wellness Resources. Uh, we offer virtual health and wellness services with one goal. Our mission is really to promote better health. I'm a graduate of Albany College of Pharmacy, the class of 2013, where I obtained my doctorate of pharmacy. I have a passion for wellness. And so I take the medical scientific knowledge that I learned from school and I combined it with nutrition and the benefits that we get from food. And, um, and so that's the uh, theme of most of my seminars. Uh, today, I've been, I have about 11 different topics that I speak on. Uh, been speaking for about six, close to seven years now. And if you wanted to learn a little bit more about me and what we uh, do, sort of services we offer, visit us online at drsed.com. That's D-R-C-E-D.com. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the COVID-19. Now we're gonna look at everything that pertains to COVID-19. So we're gonna talk about the symptoms. We're gonna talk about risk factors, how it's diagnosed. We're gonna talk about the vaccines. And then we're going to pivot and talk about the immune system. And that's really crucial because too much emphasis has been placed on the vaccine. But when you understand how it works, you understand that ultimately it comes down to your immune system. We're gonna look at ways to prevent COVID-19 and we're gonna conclude and transition into questions. So it all started in early 2020. A new virus made headlines around the world. Uh, the origins of this virus was said to have been from a food market in Wuhan, China. What was interesting about this virus was the speed of transmission in which this virus spread all over the world. Now, of course, we live in a globalized world where it's within reason for one person to leave China and travel to other parts of Asia, and next week, travel to Europe, the following week, Africa, and the following week, Americas. So that's absolutely possible today. So we can see how easily a virus can spread all over the world. Now, worldwide to date, this virus has been responsible for tens of millions of infections globally. Uh, to date, we've had over 117 million infections worldwide with about 2.6 million deaths, unfortunately. Now, back here, back home here in the United States, we've had about 29.2 million infections with over 500,000 deaths. So this is the exact definition of a pandemic, a disease that is not localized to China or even regions such as Asia, but is found all over the world. Now, coronaviruses themselves are nothing new. Actually, we've known about them for a long time. For example, we know that they are zoonotic. Now, what this means is they first develop in animals and then they are transmitted to humans. And this transmission uh, from animals to humans uh, is a result of close contact or proximity to the infected animals. Now, according to the official story, uh, it may have changed at this point, but you know what they were saying at first was that uh, someone in uh, a flea market in Wuhan must have purchased some sort of bat or pangolin or some type of exotic animal that was infected. Uh, they must have consumed it. Uh, and uh, thus the virus went from the animal uh, to the human. Now that's the official story, but I believe that a lot has changed. So uh, just take it at face value. 
Now, the virus is officially called uh, or named SARS-CoV-2. So why do we call it COVID-19? Well, that's because uh, it takes the first two letters of the word corona, the first two letters of disease, and the first letter Uh, the first two letters of corona, the first two letters of virus, and the first letter of the word disease. And then the 19 comes from 2019. COVID-19 stands for, or is a shortened form of coronavirus disease of 2019. Now, corona is not referring to the uh, Mexican beer, okay? (laughs) It's it's actually referring to, you know, the crowns uh, or these little proteins called peplomers. Now, if you look at the image uh, on your right, uh, you know, you see these red things sticking out. Those are what are uh, the proteins sticking out, the peplomers that I'm referring to. Now, this is what helps the virus latch on to cells, okay? It latches on to cells and it's able to enter the cells. And uh, when it enters the cells, it's able to uh, replicate and uh, produce even more viruses for maximum uh, infection and maximum damage. Now, we also know that this virus spreads by airborne transmission. And this is because Corona, uh, COVID-19 itself is a respiratory virus, which means it colonizes and it, it infects your lungs. Now, of course, as you speak and as you breathe, you know, particles of this virus are coming out and looking to infect uh, new people, a new host. So we know that the virus transmits from person to person through these respiratory droplets. Um, And so interesting thing about that is that small infectious particles can actually linger in the air for hours. So this means if I were positive of COVID-19 and I sneezed on a surface and somebody came along and touched that surface and then maybe touched their face, they would in, in effect be exposing themselves to viruses of COVID-19. So that's something interesting to note about this this virus. Now, uh, of course, uh, infections through close contact with infected people is perhaps the most common way that this virus is transmitting from person to person. So for much of 2019 and, and, and much of 2020, we really didn't have anything Uh, that uh, we could do in terms of therapy. So uh, the World Health Organization and the CDC really had uh, three suggestions or recommendations that they uh, stood behind. The first one was for everyone to keep their distances or social distances, as you may have heard. This was an effect, this was an effort to keep people at least six feet apart, whether it was at work, at school, you know, in their homes or just out and about in public. So this was an attempt to avoid contact with those who were sick. Uh, and also there was an initiative to, to tell anybody who was sick or who was displaying symptoms to stay at home and not bring it out to the public or to, to their job site or, or their school or anywhere else that they uh, socialize frequently. The next recommendation they had uh, was to wear masks. Now, contrary to popular belief, you, when you wear a mask, you're not doing it to protect yourself from somebody else's air particles. You know, when you wear a mask, you're actually, uh, interestingly enough, protecting other people from your own air particles and air droplets. And so what this means is normally when somebody speaks or breathe, you know, the trajectory is outward. Okay. And that's how you infect other people. However, 
when you're wearing a mask, it actually muffles that trajectory, which means rather than the air particles going outward, they are muffled and they go downward and stick close to your body. So this is a way to reduce the, uh, the risk and the rate of infection uh, for other people. Uh, so, and the third thing they recommended was for everyone to just wash their hands. Now, of course, this sounds like common sense, but it is also because if someone who is infected uh, touches a surface, maybe they, they've touched their face or they've touched their nose or and they, they touch a surface, you know, and you come along such as an elevator and you push the same button, uh, you likely have just contracted uh, the virus along your hands or your finger. So this was a way to make sure that, um, you know, throughout the day you wash your hands. Of course, if you don't have access to soap and water, then use a hand sanitizer, but always use a hand sanitizer sparingly. Uh, you don't want to overuse them as the germs on your hands can develop resistance. And that leads to a whole host of other issues. So we know that COVID-19 is a respiratory virus. So when, it, when we're looking at symptoms, we have to look at the respiratory tract to see what sort of symptoms uh, will manifest. So for example, we know uh, that uh, COVID-19 has an incubation period of up to two weeks. That's about 14 days. What this means is that someone who is positive for COVID-19, someone who has been infected with COVID-19 may not display symptoms for up to two weeks. So this makes it very difficult to know who has it because they're asymptomatic. They're not showing any symptoms. They look and feel normal, but they've been colonized. They've been infected by this virus. And so this has been one of the reasons why governments all around the world have had a very difficult time in terms of controlling the spread of this virus. They've had a very difficult time. And so this is the reason why, you know, you see, uh, you know, trends go up and down and up and down because we can't quite put our hand to this thing. Um, it's, it's very difficult to tell who has it, especially because many people who have it are not displaying any uh, symptoms. So really the virus is spreading through asymptomatic asymptomatic means. And, and so this is why, you know, it, it, it's been very difficult for governments all around the world uh, to contain it. Now, of course, uh, if you do start showing symptoms, there are actually three categories that I want to talk to you about. The first category are the less common symptoms. So these are symptoms such as sore throat, headache, muscle ache, pink eye, and even a runny nose. Uh, the next category are the more common symptoms. Now these symptoms are things such as shortness of breath, worsening cough, fever, chills, and even fatigue. So those are typical, typically what you'll experience if you have COVID-19. However, there's a third category of symptoms that you want to be very cautious about. What that means is if you start developing or experiencing these symptoms, the first thing you want to do is call 911 or make your way to the ER because these are the symptoms that ultimately end up hospitalizing people, okay, placing them on ventilators. And ultimately, these are the symptoms that are uh, killing people, right? And so these are symptoms such as difficulty or troubled breathing, Okay, bluish lips or bluish face. This is due to the lack of oxygen that you're not getting enough of because of the troubled breathing. Things such as chest pain, confusion, and even excessive drowsiness. Okay, so this is a sign that, hey, the colonization, the infection is severe. 
And uh, you can't just sit this one out. You can't just sleep it off. You can't just take a NyQuil and you'll feel better in the morning. Uh, if this continues to progress the way it's progressing, you will die. And so this is why you find uh, a lot of people have died from COVID. Again, on that point of a lot of people dying from COVID, uh, we had a spike in death when this started. And I believe that a lot of it was due to the fact that people mistook the symptoms of COVID-19 for being the symptoms of the flu. See, because COVID is so new, COVID-19 is so new for us, and the symptoms are very similar to those of the flu, a lot of people just assumed that, hey, I'll just do what I do for the flu. You know, I'll just take what I normally take for the flu and things will be better in the morning. Well, I want to tell you that uh, the differences, uh, be, I want to uh, highlight the, the differences and similarities between COVID-19 and the flu. Really, this, this is to show you how much more severe COVID-19 is to the flu and how to differentiate the two. The first thing I'd like to point out is something called the r not number. So this tells you the rate of infection amongst people. So for example, the r not number for the flu is 1.3. What this means is, uh, on average, someone with the flu is likely to infect 1.3 other people, uh, statistically. Now, someone with COVID-19 is likely to infect 2.5 other people. All right, so already you're seeing that COVID-19 uh, is far more transmissible than the flu. The next point I wanna highlight is incubation time. This is the time in which you get infected by the virus to the time in which you begin to show symptoms. With the flu, you have an incubation period of about four days. With COVID-19, you have an incubation period of up to 14 days, that's two weeks. With someone with the flu, okay, by the third or fourth day, Everybody knows that you have the flu because you're coming down with the symptoms. So people generally know enough to stay away from you or keep their distance. Whereas with COVID-19, you've got a whole two weeks to infect people unknowingly because you're not displaying any symptoms and you don't feel any different. Therefore, the people are, have no reason to distance from you. And so this is one of the reasons why COVID-19 has been very difficult to contain. Now, when we look at the hospitalization rate, we see that typically with the flu, there's a hospitalization rate of 2%, whereas with COVID-19, the hospitalization rate is about 19%. Now, if you've been watching, watching the news or paying attention these last couple of months, I'm sure you've seen news specials that highlight how uh, several times throughout this pandemic, hospitals have been overwhelmed, uh, you know, uh, dealing with shortages in staffing, shortages in supplies, but also a surge in COVID infected patients. And so we've never really experienced that with the typical common flu, no, at least not in my experience, but COVID-19 has overwhelmed hospital systems across this country uh, several times throughout this pandemic. There is even a difference when we look at the fatality rate. Uh, with the flu, you have a fatality rate of about 0.1%, whereas COVID-19, that fatality rate is up to 3.4%. Now, as far as prevention is concerned, typically you would take your annual flu shot, you would take Tylenol, cold, and sinus, you would take you know, several other over-the-counters that can help you suppress the symptoms when you do have the flu. Whereas with COVID-19, again, for much of 2019 and 2020, we really didn't have anything 
So the only things we had to rely on was socially distancing, wearing our mask and washing our hands. It wasn't until the latter part of 2020 that uh, Pfizer and Moderna came up with their uh, mRNA vaccines. But for much of that time, we really didn't have anything to inoculate uh, with. Now, there are similarities. Both of these are respiratory viruses. So of course, they are going to affect the respiratory tract. They're going to be spread through respiratory droplets. This means when you're breathing or you're speaking outward, the gust of air that's coming out is likely going to contain particles of these viruses. So because they are uh, similar in transmission and uh, in the uh, fact that they're both respiratory viruses, they have similar symptoms. And this is fever, fatigue, cough, sore throat, headaches, runny nose, and even body aches. But there are differentiating factors or differential diagnosis that you uh, that would tell you that you have COVID-19. Uh, the first one is shortness of breath, again, highlighting the severe symptoms that we uh, briefly talked about. Okay, if you're having difficulty breathing, that's a sure tell sign that what you have is COVID-19 and not the flu. Now, many people who have had COVID-19 have reported a loss of smell or a loss of taste. So that's something that's interesting and unique to COVID-19. The flu has not been known or shown to cause a loss of taste and loss of smell. So just pay attention to your, your uh, ability to breathe, ability to obtain enough oxygen. Uh, that, you know, if it's impacted or affected in any way, that should tell you that what you're dealing with is not the flu, but instead it is COVID-19. So who's at risk? That's always something uh, everybody wants to know, right? So first of all, let's take a look. If you are dealing with someone or taking care of somebody, who is positive for COVID-19, uh, you know, you're at, considered to be at high risk. So this means that if you're living with a loved one uh, that is positive, if you're providing care to, to somebody through your job, maybe that has tested positive. So this uh, is uh, affects nurses and doctors and everything. Or if you've been exposed to somebody's saliva uh, or air droplets, uh, and that person happens to be infected, then you would be considered high risk. So that means if that person sat close to you and spoke to you, uh, you know, close range, and, but later found out they were positive, you would be at risk because you've just been exposed uh, to their air particles um, containing the virus. Now, of course, uh, in general population, we really have to pay attention to the elderly. They're the ones that are at the greatest risk of severe, for these severe complications. So uh, the elderly, you know, they generally struggle with poorer health, uh, many of whom, I would assume most of whom have at least some form of chronic disease, um, you know, so they're, they're not as sturdy as they were when they were younger. So they tend to have, have a more fragile health uh, uh, and immune system. So the elderly are considered a high risk population. The other high risk population are really those with chronic diseases. So we're talking about those who are diabetic, those who are obese, those who have any sort of heart condition, uh, chronic kidney disease, or, you know, have a weakened immune system. Now, this may be through uh, chemotherapy uh, for cancer patients, those with HIV AIDS, or, you know, those who are taking, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, anti-immune uh, suppressant drugs, um, you know, these guys uh, or these uh, people would be considered high risk. Interestingly enough, the majority of those who uh, have been hospitalized in one study were found to uh, to at least have uh, to have at least one chronic disease. So there's definitely a correlation or relationship between chronic diseases and uh, weakened immune system and COVID-19 hospitalization. There's also another category of people who are at considered high risk, and that's uh, these are women that are currently pregnant. Uh, apparently, pregnancy puts you at a higher risk for complications. Now, according to the CDC, pregnant women are more likely to experience severe COVID-19 illness. As a matter of fact, they noted that pregnant women entered the ICU, uh, that's the intensive care unit of a hospital, at three times the rate as non-pregnant women. They also noticed that uh, pregnant women had a higher mortality rate than non-pregnant women. So if you or someone you love or uh, you know, is pregnant, then they are considered high risk. You wanna minimize your exposure or the risk of exposure as best as you can. Uh, the silver lining is that uh, for, for those mothers who have been hospitalized with COVID-19, uh, when they've recovered, uh, they did not find that the fetal child, you know, the child that she's carrying in the womb, uh, the fetal child has not been uh, put at risk due to the virus uh, being uh, mainly uh, a respiratory virus. And so that's the good thing. I believe the amniotic sac is uh, protecting the child. So thank goodness for that. So let's talk testing. Okay, now I wanna ask the audience here, just uh, asking uh, the audience, who has been tested? Does anyone care to share who's been tested? I've been tested. I've been tested as well. Excellent, and he, excellent. And Henry's I, been tested. I have been tested, yes. Excellent. Been. So with regards to testing, um, if, if anybody wants to know where they can test, uh, you can always look up the uh, CDC. Uh, you can, uh, usually your local health department uh, you have commercial companies that are testing. You have certain pharmacies such as the uh, a CVS and a Walgreens with the drive-through testing. Uh, you have urgent care centers. Uh, you will even have certain community centers that are offering testing. I know that we would fall under, uh, you know, commercial companies. Uh, we're uh, going from church to church and we're uh, testing uh, the members and testing the people of that community. Uh, so there are, um, you simply have to Google or search online to find somewhere local uh, near you that is offering testing. Now, in terms of tests, there are three tests that are available. Uh, there's the molecular PCR test, there's the rapid antigen test, and there's the antibody test. Now, of all three of those, my favorite, and I believe the most useful, is the molecular PCR test. What it does is it tells you whether you have an active infection at that point in time. And it's obtained through swabbing of your throat or your nasal uh, or, or uh, your saliva. Now, the reason I like this test is because it's highly accurate. And uh, depending on the lab, you can get your results um, you know, from a day to up to 72 hours. Okay, so that really depends on the lab. The next test is the rapid antigen test. Now you may have heard of this. This is the one that promises to give you results within an hour. 
Now, this also detects for an active infection. So it lets you know at that point in time, whether you're positive or negative. Now, it's also available through nasal or throat swab. Now, the thing about this is this. When it's positive, it's highly accurate. But when it's negative, it's not very accurate. Okay, so when it tells you that you're positive, you can trust those results. But when it tells you that you're negative, you're not sure because it's not very accurate in the negative realm. That's why they always refer people, hey, just take the PCR test because that seems to be the most accurate test. And the third category of testing are the antibody test. Now, this test is actually different from the other two. Here's what I mean by that. This test, unlike the other two that tell you whether you have an active infection right there and then, this test will actually tell you whether you've been exposed or whether you've had COVID sometime in the past. Now, remember, COVID-19 uh, has an incubation period of up to two weeks. So that means you may have COVID-19 and not know it. And so what this test does is it lets you know whether you've been exposed to the virus over the last couple of months. So if you take an antibody test and it's positive for the antibodies, it doesn't mean you have COVID now. All it means is over the last two to three months, you were exposed to the virus. That's all it means, okay? So it's usually done through blood draw or a finger stick. Um, occasionally a second test is required for a better accuracy, uh, but you can get results the same day. Uh, but yeah, the most useful in my opinion is the molecular PCR test. That's actually the one uh, that we offer. Uh, depending on the number of people that show up, we may decide to offer the uh, rapid antigen test at some point. Okay, now. Can I ask a question? One second, please. Put now, Operation Warp Speed was a government initiative under the uh, Trump administration. And the idea behind this was to accelerate vaccine development, uh, the getting out of COVID tests, the supplies, uh, the, the, and as well as the distribution of uh, these vaccines and the COVID supply, the COVID tests and personal protective equipment. So this was a government initiative to essentially remove the red tape to the, to the manufacturing and distribution of COVID related items, okay? Now I wanna tell you how it worked. Normally, in order to develop a vaccine, uh, that process can take up to five, between five to 10 years, okay? That's the traditional method of developing a vaccine. However, under Operation Warp Speed, they were able to develop vaccines in just a couple of months. So how did they do it? Well, it helps that they removed a lot of the barriers that typically um, you know, slow down the process. Now, those barriers are actually helpful because those barriers ensure several things. Number one, they ensure that the vaccines are safe. Number, number two, they ensure that a lot of people and different ethnic groups and different people have been uh, uh, tested to see that it doesn't cause some sort of reaction on one group of people uh, than others. So the process of developing a vaccine taking 10 years is actually a very good thing. It makes sure that by the time a vaccine is released, the, the, the number of side effects has been kept to a minimum, okay? And we can be certain that the results that we obtain under test uh, will be duplicated in the general population. But under Operation Warp Speed, a lot of that was removed, a lot of those barriers were removed. And so due to the urgency of the virus, they sort of rushed things through. 
uh, you know, in order to combat the pandemic. Now, typically a traditional vaccine works like this. They'll take that virus, they'll take a weakened form of the virus. So a virus that's not going to prop up and just start taking over, but it's weakened. They'll inject you with it. And so your body has time to develop a response to this virus that is weakened. So the virus is not able to fight as hard as it normally would. And that's typically how a traditional vaccine is, is developed. And this is a slower and more difficult process because you have to find the right type of protein. You have to weaken the virus enough without killing it. And so all of that takes time. Under the mRNA protocol, the mRNA vaccines, what they do instead, they give you a strand of genetic material or an mRNA, which is essentially a blueprint for a protein. Now, remember earlier, those red things sticking out of the COVID, uh, the coronavirus, you know, we call them paplomers. Those are the proteins, right? So what the mRNA vaccines are doing is they are taking the genetic code for that protein. They are injecting it into your cells. And what that's going to do is it's going to make your cells themselves start to develop that same protein that the virus has. Okay. Now what happens is theoretically your body should identify that protein and develop antibodies to better fight against it. Okay. So that's what seems to be happening. Now, the thing about mRNA, which made them faster, is that they're actually easier to produce, right? They're actually easier to produce. And because of Operation Warp Speed and the fact that they didn't have to test it on hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, they were uh, given the freedom to sort of test it on uh, several thousands of people. And, uh, you know, whatever results they obtained, uh, you know, they went with those results. So that's what resulted from Operation Warp Speed. So right now we have three types of vaccines. We have the Pfizer, we have the Moderna, which are both mRNA vaccines. And we have the Johnson & Johnson, which is the adenovirus vaccine. So it's, it's more so like a traditional vaccine than the other two. Okay, now I wanna talk about Pfizer and Moderna first before delving into Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine require two injections. For Pfizer, those injections have to be about three weeks or 21 days apart. For Moderna, they have to be about four weeks or 28 days apart. The thing about the Pfizer vaccine that has proven difficult for, for some people to obtain or certain, certain companies to obtain is that it requires a special, a special fridge right? It requires to be frozen at negative 70 degrees Celsius. Otherwise, the vaccine starts to lose efficacy because the mRNA uh, genetic material starts to uh, decay or fall apart, okay? It loses stability. The Moderna vaccine can be kept or stored in a regular fridge, okay? That's uh, two to eight degrees Celsius for up to 30 days. Now, in terms of trial, Pfizer used about 43,538 people, Moderna used about 30,000 people. Now, going back to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's a viral vector, okay? So they took a virus and they put that mRNA, that genetic sequence inside the virus, okay? Then they injected the virus inside of you. So instead of your cells developing those viral proteins, the viral protein is actually found inside that virus, 
Now it's a one, it's, it's one injection. So you don't have to take a second dose. And as far as storage is concerned, you're looking at about 40 degrees Celsius for up to three months. So this has a longer shelf life, a lot easier to handle uh, in store. And they use about, they tested this on about 40,000 people. So what did all that testing uh, yield? Well, for Pfizer, it showed that it had a 95% uh, uh, efficacy in terms of reducing severe symptoms. And I want to emphasize severe symptoms for Moderna, it had a 94.5% efficacy of reducing severe symptoms. And for Johnson & Johnson, had a 66.3% rate of reducing severe symptoms. So those are the efficacy claims in all of those. Now, of course, given that they are vaccines being injected inside of you, there are certain side effects that are common amongst all of them, such as pain, swelling, fever, chills, tiredness, and even headache. But here's the important question, okay? This is the question that we need to ask ourselves. Whether you've gotten both doses of the Pfizer and Moderna, or you've gotten the single dose Johnson & Johnson, the question is, can you still get infected? Yes. That's right. Yes, you can, despite having gotten uh, all of your, your inoculations. Yes, you can. The other question is, can you still spread COVID-19? Yes. That's right. Yeah. Like, like President Obama said, yes, we can, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we can. You can still get it. You can still spread it. Remember this. The yeah. vaccines are meant to stop you from developing severe symptoms, such as difficulty breathing, chest pain, you know, the ones that will get you hospitalized and ultimately kill you. That's what it does. So is COVID testing, should you still COVID test despite having gotten both doses of the mRNA vaccines or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Should you still get COVID testing? Yes. 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 Right. And that's the point that we're trying to emphasize because from our experience, a lot of the people who've gotten vaccinated assume that they don't need to get tested. Mm. That is a mistake. We couldn't yell at them. <laughs> we just had to, you know, we just had to like invite them to the seminar. I mean, that's all we can do, you know? Okay. All right. So that's COVID-19. Now I want to talk to you guys about the immune system because this is the other part that a lot of people aren't thinking about or haven't been told, told about, unfortunately. So it's important to know that our immune system protects us from viruses bacteria, toxins, viruses, free radicals, viruses, and parasites, and viruses. I hope you you took notice that I kept repeating viruses, right? Because that's something the immune system specializes in. That the immune system is a lot like the body's military. And just like the military, it has protective barriers, specialized soldiers, manufacturing station, transportation systems, storage areas, and cleanup crews, just, just like a military. So let's take a look at the soldiers, right? You've got a category of soldiers called phagocytes. They specialize in finding and eating pathogen. These are foreign objects or foreign things in your body, such as viruses. You've got B cells that create the antibodies against these pathogen. Again, so when they identify something that's harmful to you, they create antibodies to lock onto them, identify them, harass them, and help other cells come in and gobble them up. 
You've got helper T cells. Now these ones coordinate the immune response. They activate the B cells to be able to produce the antibodies and they activate killer T cells. Now the star of the show in terms of the soldiers are the killer T cells because they specialize in attacking and killing uh, those cells of yours that have been hijacked, okay, by viruses or even bacteria. And that's very important once we learn how viruses work. But there's also a lymphatic system. Uh, these are organs that are specialized in helping your immune response. So this consists of things like your tonsils, hope you haven't gotten them removed, your lymph node, your spleen, your thoracic duct, your sternocilia, and your thymus. Okay, these organs support your body's defense by producing those soldiers we mentioned, storing them in the barracks, transporting them to battle sites around the body, and even employing cleanup crews. Okay, so these organs are crucial for a well-working immune system. Now, let's take a look at how viruses work. You know, viruses are a lot like that deadbeat 18-year-old son or daughter you have, okay? You know, they're 18 years old or maybe older, but they don't want to leave the house. You know, they don't want to go to work. They want to leech or mooch out for you. Now, here's why I say that, because viruses themselves, they cannot survive on their own. They actually need a host in order to survive. So they don't even reproduce on their own. They need to seize control of one of your cells, hijack it, and make that cell reproduce for it. So they're very lazy, okay? They're mooches, right? They hijack and they control and they coerce. And so if you take a look at the illustration over on the right, what do you see? You see a virus latching on using the protein molecule. You remember those peplomers we talked about? This is how COVID-19 works. It latches onto your cells. It tricks it into letting it in. Then it releases its genetic material, which is then replicated by the cell's machinery and then assembled as new viruses, which then are released and go off and repeat the same cycle over and over and over until your respiratory system or your body is overwhelmed by them. And so this is where those killer T cells come in. You see, the killer T cells are not just looking for viruses. They're actually looking for cells that have been hijacked as well. So they're able to shut down the virus producing factories altogether. That's why they're so special with regards to viruses, okay? So these viruses, all they do is they trick your body trick your cells into propagating new viruses to go ahead and colonize and occupy and hijack other cells. So cells only survive by transmitting into other cells. This is how they survive. So the easier the a time a cell has transmitting to other hosts, the more virulent that virus will be. And this is what we find with COVID-19 because if I have, if I'm positive and I speak and you're near me and my breath, which is carrying viral particles in there, touches you, they're gonna to try to colonize your cells as well. So we know about COVID-19, we know about the vaccines and we know about how cells or how viruses hijack our body. So what can we do about it? Well, prevention is the best medicine, okay? So a strong immune system is key. I hope you've understood Okay, I did not emphasize the vaccine as the end all be all solution. I emphasized, I am emphasizing a strong immune system because even the way a vaccine works is by giving your immune system practice 
by allowing your immune system to get exposed to a weakened form of a virus, or even by allowing your immune system to be exposed to that uh, uh, mRNA, which produces the protein of the COVID-19, okay? It's actually giving your immune system a practice test or a practice run at COVID-19, right? So it's working to help strengthen your immune system, believe it or not. And so what are some other ways we can improve the immune system? Well, how about sleeping? Sleep strengthens your immune system. If you're an adult, it's recommended that you get at least seven hours for teenagers, eight to 10, and children up to 14. I see it. You can also eat more plant-based foods. Whole plant-based foods contain antioxidants, vitamins, vitamin C, fiber, all of which lower your susceptibility to illness. You can also incorporate mm -hmm. fats into your diet, things such as expeller pressed oils. You know, expeller pressed is the way they are processed, okay? They, they often cause less damage to your arteries when you consume them. Uh, you can take omega-3s, essential uh, fatty acids. These things are highly anti-inflammatory, okay? And if you take, if you're eating too much oil, then, you know, uh, you, you lead to chronic, you're introducing excessive inflammation into your system and excessive or chronic inflammation can actually suppress your immune system. You can eat uh, fermented foods, or if you don't like the taste, take a probiotic. Okay. You have to understand gut health and immunity are interconnected. Okay. So fermented foods are things like sauerkraut. I think there's kombucha, you know, so even some yogurts come with uh, probiotics. Um, these things can actually boost your immune system. Another thing you can do is to lower or reduce the amount of added sugar you consume. Added sugar actually contributes to chronic disease. And so the less sugar you're able to obtain, okay, the better your, your immune system will be, okay? Less sugar intake lowers the amount of inflammation or damage that your body has to bear. You can exercise. Moderate exercise has been shown to reduce inflammation and produce the healthy turnover of cells. What that means is when it, when it comes to your immune cells, the old cells can die peacefully and new younger cells can replace them. And so you can still have a stronger immune system. You should stay hydrated, okay? Dehydration does more than just make you thirsty, okay? It actually reduces your body's overall function. And so this just increases your risk, uh, your susceptibility to illness. Hydration is wonderful. Uh, it can also help your body get rid of toxins, okay? And the next thing you should do is reduce your stress level. Some stress is good. Yeah, I get it. But what we're talking about is chronic stress, you know, being stressed at work, being stressed at home, being stressed here, being stressed there. Find a way to reduce that stress. Some people have uh, success with prayer, Okay, meditating, uh, exercising, you know, uh, uh, joyful practices, those things can keep your immune system functioning properly. Now, I briefly want to delve into the role of food or the impact of food on our immune system, because this is crucial. So one thing we have to understand is that our, our soil, you know, where our food is grown has actually become depleted over the years, right? And this is because we have crops and livestock. They actually, uh, an erosion actually depletes the amount of nutrients uh, in the soil. So that means the amount of nutrients in our soil 
is less and less over the years, okay? This is also due to modern uh, intensive agricultural farming methods, okay? You know, uh, you, you know you're supposed to, uh, actually in the Bible it says you're supposed to let the soil rest, right? After a certain number of years, you're supposed to let it rest. Okay, and then go on somewhere else and farm. But of course, today we don't always do that, right? We just farm and farm and farm and farm and farm, not allowing that soil to rest. And so uh, it, it kind of, what it does is it makes, it ensures that the yield that is produced does not contain the same amount of nutrients as the previous yield. So for example, a stalk of broccoli, maybe in the nineties had uh, 500 milligrams of calcium. Well, that same stock of broccoli today has about 200 milligrams of calcium, for example. Therefore, you would have to eat two and a half uh, stalks of broccoli in order to get the same amount of nutrients that you got, you once got in the 90s. So just to give you an illustration, an idea to think about how, you know, the soil affects the food, which then affects our health. So many farmers, many growers don't actually reproduce or re, uh, replenish the depleted nutrients or all of the depleted nutrients. So this means that the food that we consume does not always provide us with as many nutrients as we need. And the thing about that is micronutrients are required for the immune system to function properly. Just to give you an example, a deficiency in any nutrient can actually suppress the immune system. For example, a deficiency in vitamin B2 can lead to stunted growth or poor skin. A deficiency in B12 can lead to anemia. A deficiency in vitamin C can lead to scurvy. A deficiency in vitamin D can lead to rickets. A deficiency in iodine can lead to goiters. A deficiency in vitamin K can lead to excessive bleeding. Now there's a whole lot of vitamins and there's a whole lot of minerals out there. So think about all the minerals we're not getting through the typical Western diet, okay? We're getting a lot of sugar, but not enough minerals, not enough nutrients. And so the point I'm trying to emphasize is this, these same micronutrients are absolutely important because they work together to support the work of the immune cells. We're talking about vitamins A, C, E, D, B6, B12, and even folic acid. We're talking about minerals such as iron, zinc, copper, and even selenium. These are essential for antibody production, okay? This is your part of your defense, your immune system defense, okay? Now you also have a category called free radicals, okay? Which are often as a result of a lot of the oils that we fry, things such as canola oil, Crisco margarine, hydrogenation, horrible things, okay? Now, back to the gut. The intestinal tract is the largest organ in the immune system. That's because it starts with your mouth and ends with your anus, okay? It's all one tube, all right? Now, that is crucial for the strength of your immune system, absolutely crucial. Therefore, it's important to maintain your intestinal tract, your gut health. It is crucial. What we're talking about is things such as probiotics, putting good microbes in to keep bad microbes in check. Okay, not only that, probiotics can actually enhance the immune function against bacteria, viruses, and even fungi. Okay, and they also help improve digestion and your overall health. Yeah. Now, uh, we're almost done, family, but I want to talk about perhaps the star of the show. We're, I know we're talking about vitamins in a broad sense, but I want to bring your attention something called vitamin D. Now, I've been following this for a long time. I remember a couple of months ago, Dr. Fauci was giving a testimony on the Senate floor. And, you know, they were asking him all these questions. And then somebody finally asked him what he was doing 
you know, sort of like, uh, you know, what he was taking uh, for COVID-19. Well, he didn't say it was for COVID-19, but he mentioned that he was taking vitamin D. And, you know, of course, the senators just moved on to another question. And I thought about it and I said, huh, he's taking vitamin D. I wonder what that means. So I looked into it. And it's very interesting what I found. So vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin that can be stored for long periods of time. Uh, it's typically available in two forms, D3, also known as colocalciferol, and D2, also known as ergocalciferol. Now, here's where vitamin D gets interesting. Vitamin D is produced when the cholesterol that is made by your liver and mine, our livers make cholesterol, ladies and gentlemen, Vitamin D that is produced from cholesterol when it's exposed to solar rays, the sun, it converts the cholesterol into vitamin D. So sunlight correlates with vitamin D or the amount of vitamin D in your body. Okay, very important, very important relationship. Now, prior to the pandemic, up to 40% of US adults were said to be deficient in vitamin D. Now take a look at this. In the black, amongst black Americans, 82% of black adults are deficient in vitamin D. Among Hispanics, 56% of Hispanics are deficient in vitamin D. And amongst Caucasian Americans, 35% of them are deficient in vitamin D. Now that's before the pandemic. That's when everybody would go out and you know walk around the sun and everything. That's what the statistics were. What do you think they are today? Mm. I would assume they're worse mm-hmm. because people haven't been going outside like they should. Okay, now let's take a look at the functions of vitamin D. Now, of course, if you've watched any TV over the last 10, 20 years, you know milk helps strong bones, right? And it, it really does this by helping absorb calcium better and uh, which ultimately strengthens your bones, right? But did you know vitamin D also can help activate certain genes? This has a role in cancer. It actually plays a role in reducing your risk of cancer, ladies and gentlemen. Interesting. Now, vitamin D also helps reduce depression. It helps reduce your risk of type 1 diabetes and even cancer. And this is where I want to focus. Did you know that vitamin D has been shown to fight and kill respiratory viruses? That's right. Vitamin D has been shown to fight and kill respiratory viruses. Okay, So it helps with respiratory infections. Now, of course, if you look at the image over to the right, you see a whole host of things that vitamin D uh, offers us in terms of service. Okay. But of course, because uh, this topic is focused on COVID-19, and we're talking about respiratory uh, diseases or respiratory infections of viruses, we now have a relationship between vitamin D and COVID-19. Now, am I saying vitamin D will will prevent COVID-19? No, but I am saying that it helps to fight it when you're in a war. You don't say no to troops. (laughs) You understand? And what have we done? over the last year and a half, we stayed away from outside. Mm -hmm. We stayed away from sunlight. Mm -hmm. And we are not eating all that well because our soil is deficient. Mm -hmm. Do you see how all of these things are coming together? And even when you look at those who are dying the most, 
uh, proportionally. You look at African-Americans mm -hmm. and you look at the elderly. Now, what do those two have in common? Low levels of vitamin D. vitamin D. Now, what that simply means is that if they had higher levels of vitamin D, their immune system would have functioned a little bit better. They would have resisted a little bit better. Do you understand? Right. Mm -hmm. so vitamin D should be an integral part of your immune system, especially in the era of COVID. Okay. All of those other things, eating well, sleeping and everything are just as important, but don't forget to check your vitamin D levels. Right. Now, of course, uh, it can be found in foods such as salmon, eggs, and the products such as milk and, and other juices. Uh, if you want to obtain it for free, uh, you can go outside and sunbathe, right? And stand in the sun and get all of that vitamin D. Now, of course, you can also supplement your diet, which is what I do, which is what I advocate, especially if you live in the Northeast, because even if you are going out, uh, you know, to sunbathe and everything. We only have sun for six months out of the year. <laughs> nice. Texas, you know, it's cold out there. So mm -hmm. unless you're eating the perfect diet, I would supplement. Now, of course, if you are going to supplement, if you're between the ages of one and 70, uh, they recommend taking 600 IUs. That stands for international units uh, a day. If you're over 70, take 800 IUs a day. And if you're under one years old, you're taking about 400 IUs a day. But vitamin D is crucial, ladies and gentlemen. As a matter of fact, there are studies that have shown, one study showed uh, that 80% of the, uh, forgot the exact sample size, but uh, they had hundreds of people who were hospitalized with COVID-19. And they found that over 80% of them were deficient in, COVID, in vitamin D. It is linked yeah. okay, to a strong or weak immune system. That's what vitamin D does. So just to summarize, family, thank you so much for put, uh, putting up with me and sitting through this. But just to summarize, according to the CDC, you want to social distance. Okay, you want to wash your hands when you can, sanitize, but don't, don't abuse the, sanitiz the uh, hand sanitizers. And you want to wear a face mask. Symptoms, keep in mind, you have to understand that COVID-19 is a respiratory disease. It's a respiratory virus. Therefore, you want to look for respiratory symptoms, okay? Mm -hmm. Things such as fevers and chills, okay? But of course, it can be misconstrued to be the symptoms of the flu. Therefore, you want to look for symptoms such as difficulty breathing, confusion, okay? A loss of smell, a loss of taste. Now, uh, be extra careful if you find yourself as an at-risk group. Uh, we're talking about those who are elderly, those who are chronic, uh, who have chronic diseases, uh, minorities, especially melanated people, right? Melanin plays a role in why uh, African-Americans have a higher deficiency in vitamin D. Uh, you know, you want to get tested often. Even if you've taken the vaccine, you want to get tested as often as you can, okay? Because remember, whether you've taken the Pfizer, the Moderna, or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you can still catch the virus and you can still spread the virus. So this is for everyone, whether you've been vaccinated or not, what you wanna do is you wanna focus on improving your immune system through those eight steps that we, we addressed. You wanna consider lifestyle change, changes for the better. So that means if you're consuming a lot of sweets and sugars, cut back on that, 
Okay, add more fruits and vegetables into your diet. I know we say it all the time, but now there's a virus that's actually out there killing us if we don't, okay? If we don't boost our immune system. You wanna make the proper dietary changes and you wanna see if you're vitamin D deficient. And even if you're not, keep taking your vitamin D, ideally in liquid form, okay? Ideally in liquid form. Mm -hmm. So uh, so this brings us to the end of our seminar. Uh, this uh, list here shows a list of seminar topics that uh, we at Dr. Cedric, drsed.com uh, speak on. Uh, this was the COVID-19 presentation. I want to thank you. Uh, if anybody would like to learn more, subscribe to my website uh, where I can, uh, you know, whenever I have these seminars, I, I usually send out an email and invite people uh, to join. Um, so just go on drsed.com and, uh, you know, subscribe. If anybody would like me to make recommendations on certain vitamins or certain supplements, uh, if you have any health issues that you want me to address personally and privately, uh, you can always visit me at wellevate.me slash drsed. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I won't hesitate to make a recommendation for you. Uh, with that being said, I want to thank you all folks for being here and, uh, yeah, I'm Dr. Cedric.